Hi everyone, it's Vicki Basilica from the ASHP section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists, and I'd like you to welcome you to this special episode of Therapeutic Thursdays. Once again, I am excited to share some of the great clinical content that was a part of the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy this highlight and be sure to check back soon for more features. Before we debate anticoagulation strategies and end-stage renal disease, it's important to understand the significant impact cardiovascular disease has on morbidity and mortality in this patient population. Cardiovascular disease accounts for over 50% of deaths in patients with end-stage renal disease, the leading cause of death for this population. In addition, patients with end-stage renal disease have a higher incidence of atrial fibrillation and venous thromboembolism. Unfortunately, Therapeutic interventions with well-established efficacy and safety in patients without chronic kidney disease have shown varying benefits in this patient population. In today's debate, we will be discussing the available literature, or you could say the lack thereof, of anticoagulation in patients with ESRD, with the primary focus being on direct oral anticoagulants compared with warfarin. Given the impact pharmacokinetics have on dosing in ESRD, I just want to briefly touch on a few key aspects that will help explain why warfarin and only some DOACs have data in reduced renal clearance. Starting with warfarin, it's primarily metabolized by the liver and has minimal renal clearance and thus no dose adjustments for renal impairment. DOACs, on the other hand, all have some varying degree of renal clearance, with the lowest being apixaban at 27%, followed by rivaroxaban at 36% unchanged, adoxaban at 50%, and then finally, dabigatran at 80% uh, is cleared via the kidneys. Therefore, when assessing the impact of reduced renal clearance and dosing modifications based on package insert, we can see significant variability. And as you can see listed here, most of the DOACs are not recommended with the creatinine clearance less than 15 mils per minute. However, given that less than 50% of apixaban and rivaroxaban are eliminated renally, researchers have explored the pharmacokinetic impact of dialysis on the clearance of these agents to further explore their potential safety. When looking at the impact of HD on apixaban clearance, Wang and colleagues evaluated the impact of a four-hour HD session on the clearance of apixaban 5 milligrams. Results showed the Cmax was 10% lower, AUC 36% higher, and roughly 7% of apixaban was removed by HD. The authors concluded these were not significant differences and that no dose adjustment is necessary based on renal dysfunction alone. Maverickanis and colleagues published a follow-up study in 2017, and they looked at the potential for accumulation of apixaban with multiple dosing. Comparing the results in this crossover design, the authors found that in some patients receiving five milligrams twice a day, that the AUC and trough concentrations were greater than the 90th percentile found in the original approval studies in those patients with normal renal function. As a result, the authors recommended to avoid apixaban five milligrams twice a day in patients with end-stage renal disease on HD, and that 2.5 milligrams twice a day should be the preferred dosing strategy. We will reevaluate this PK and dosing controversy in the apixaban dosing section of our presentation today. The pharmacokinetics of both rivaroxaban 10 milligrams and the traditional 15 milligram dosing strategy have been evaluated in chronic HD patients with results from both trials showing minimal to no removal of, of rivaroxaban by HD. 
as well as similar results in terms of AUC and clearance as compared to those with moderate to severe renal dysfunction. Both authors support future studies to evaluate optimal dosing strategies of rivaroxaban in patients maintained on chronic HD. However, there is currently no FDA-approved dosing strategy for rivaroxaban in patients with end-stage renal disease maintained on HD. And then also there's no approved uh, dosing strategies at this time for dabigatran or adoxaban either. So our first debate is going to discuss the role of anticoagulation specifically in the AFib patient population. We know that CKD, including end-stage renal disease, is an independent risk factor for stroke with an increased risk of about 7% for every 10 mils per minute um, per 1.73 meters squared GFR decrease. These patients also have an increased risk of both major and intracranial bleeding, and of course their risk is increased further in the presence of anticoagulation therapy. The CHADS-VAS scoring system, which we typically rely on to help assess a patient's risk for stroke um, in atrial fibrillation is not reliable and has not been validated in the CKD or end-stage renal disease patient population. So there really is significant controversy for the net clinical benefit of oral anticoagulation in general. So it's not surprising if we look at our consensus recommendations, whether it's the American Heart Association and American College of Cardiology, CHEST, KDIGO, or European colleagues, the European Heart Rhythm Association, or the European Society of Cardiology, not taking a strong stance in patients with end-stage renal disease on or off dialysis with what to do to anticoagulate these patients. The American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, gives a recommendation that it might be reasonable to use either apixaban or warfarin. Our chest um, colleagues feel that we need individual decision-making, but they actually state that vitamin K antagonist therapy should be preferred as long as you keep the time and therapeutic range at a high percent. KDGO basically says it's a wash with warfarin therapy and the role of apixaban or rivaroxaban are unknown. And then our European colleagues basically state either to avoid the use of DOAX or ask for more controlled clinical trial data. We think of warfarin as our long-standing standard of care for anticoagulation and AFib, but when we look at patients specifically with end-stage renal disease, we know that they have a proportion of time in target INR range to be lower. They also have a labile INR, and it's been shown that they actually have an increased risk of supertherapeutic INRs, especially when we initiate warfarin. And they also have enhanced vas vascular calcification in the presence of warfarin therapy, making it not an ideal option in these patients. And if we look at the body of literature at large for warfarin in patients with AFib on end-stage renal disease, I think we would not be doing this topic justice if we didn't talk about the true lack of efficacy data using what in theory has been our longstanding gold standard of care. What you see here is 14 observational studies, only of which two are prospective and they're mainly single center or registry claim data. Our patient population in all these observational studies was atrial fibrillation with end-stage renal disease on or off dialysis. And the intervention being looked at in each of these studies is warfarin use versus our non-users. And what I really just want to point out briefly is if we look at the efficacy data column, and efficacy could have been the first um, any thrombo thromboembolic event defined differently depending on the study, there really isn't 
data to help support the use of anticoagulating these patients. So there was a non-statistical finding in almost all of these observational studies. I've highlighted the four studies that did show benefit of warfarin use over non-use. And when we look at major bleeding, not surprisingly, if you look at our relative risks, they're increased um, in the presence of anticoagulation with varying incidences of statistical significance. If we look at five meta-analyses, primarily comprised of the observational studies that I was just pointing out, when we look at the efficacy endpoints of stroke or thromboism, thromboembolism or mortality, what you'll see here looking at our confidence intervals is that none of these meta-analyses found benefit of using warfarin in our end-stage renal disease patients. And then not surprisingly, bleeding was consistently increased in the presence of anticoagulation. So, before we dive into our DOAC data, I think we really need to keep in mind that we don't have great data for warfarin either. It's observational studies, mainly retrospective, things like time and therapeutic range could not adequately be set, assessed in these observational studies. We're also not considering concomitant antiplatelet therapy in these patients, which we know is used in large percentages. And really we have significant heterogeneity seen in these outcomes. Before we begin reviewing the data supporting the use of DOAX for AFib in patients with reduced renal clearance, it's important to highlight a few key points that Dr. Starr just mentioned. One being that warfarin has only been studied in two prospective clinical trials and the remainder of data is from retrospective or observa observational studies. It's also important to keep in mind, as she mentioned, that standard of care is not supported by gold standard research. The second point is that warfarin and apixaban were listed as options for anticoagulation in the 2019 American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, Heart Rhythm Society Clinical Practice Guidelines for the management of non-valvular AFib in patients for, with high risk of stroke. This was a change from 2014 where the panel found it reasonable for patients with end-stage renal disease on HD to be prescribed warfarin. The guidelines at this time only mentioned apixaban, but there was, lack, uh, there was no specific recommendation due to the lack of clinical data at this time. Uh, the guidelines do recommend against using dabigatran and rivaroxaban, and in, in 2019, adoxaban was also added to this recommendation. So what evidence did we gain between 2014 and 2019 that led to the inclusion of apixaban in the recommendation for reasonable anticoagulation options for patients with AFib and end-stage renal disease. Let's first take a look at a retrospective review published by Stanton and colleagues in 2017. This study included patients with varying degrees of reduced renal clearance, including those on HD and PD. The primary endpoint that they looked at was major bleeding. When focusing on end-stage renal disease alone, there were 27 patients in each group, nine patients on HD and two on PD in each arm of the study. No difference in baseline characteristics were noted with the majority receiving anticoagulation for AFib. This sample population primarily represents elderly Caucasian females with varying degrees of, um, with a, or excuse me, with a high risk of stroke with a mean CHADS VAS score of six and a high risk of bleeding based on a HAZ-LED score of three. The results are shown here with a numerically lower number of bleeds with the Pixaban, but without statistical significance. However, I do wanna highlight that this trial did not achieve its pre-specified power of 236 patients in each group. Therefore, the lack of difference may have been the result of their small sample size. 
The authors concluded apixaban appears to be a reasonable alternative to warfarin with non-significant differences seen in rates of bleeding. A similar single center retrospective chart review was conducted by Surratt and colleagues. Patients in this review were limited to a creatinine clearance less than 15 mils per minute or undergoing chronic HD. There were no statistically significant differences in baseline characteristics. Overall, the population primarily represents Caucasian males receiving apixaban for AFib with a median CHADS VAS score of five in each group. Similar to Stanton and colleagues, a numerically lower number of patients experienced a major bleed with apixaban at zero events compared with seven in the warfarin group. Again, this did not meet statistical significance, but may have been a result of type two error as the authors here did al also did not meet their pre-specified power. The authors concluded there are no observed differences in bleeding rates in patients on dialysis receiving apixaban compared with warfarin, and that apixaban may be a cautious consideration in this patient population, but that further studies were needed to assess drug accumulation and clinical outcomes. Reed and colleagues performed another retrospective chart review at an academic medical center where they evaluated adults only with end-stage renal disease on HD receiving apixaban or warfarin for AFib, VTE treatment, or prophylaxis. And again, here the overall um, endpoint was primary um, overall bleeding event rates. Baseline characteristics were similar among the groups with the only statistically significant difference being in the number of patients receiving warfarin, which I've highlighted here, um, for anti their anticoagulation was for stroke prophylaxis compared with apixaban. Overall, this study population primarily represents African-American males with the CHADS-VAS score of four and a HAS-BLOOD score of three, equating to both a high risk of bleeding and clotting, but a little bit more balanced um, than the other studies that we've talked about. Conversely to Stanton and Surratt, Reed and colleagues were able to define and found a statistical significance between bleeding rates and those receiving apixaban compared to warfarin. Additionally, there were more patients on warfarin with any type of bleeding event, as well as major bleeds. So based on their results, the authors concluded apixaban is a safe and effective alternative to warfarin for, for patients with end-stage renal disease maintained on hemodialysis. In 2018, a much larger retrospective review of Medicare beneficiaries was published. There were over 2,300 patients on apixaban versus 23,000 on warfarin for AFib only. Baseline characteristics were well matched between the two groups. And overall, this population primarily represents Caucasian males around the age of 68 with a mean CHADS-VAS score of five. Only 5% 5 of patients in this study um, were on peritoneal dialysis. The study results showed no difference in the incidence of stroke or systemic embolism between the two groups. However, again, as what we've previously been talking about, there was a statistically significant difference in major bleeding with apixaban having a lower risk than warfarin with a hazard ratio of 0.72. The authors concluded apixaban is associated with a lower risk of bleeding in patients with end-stage renal disease and atrial fibrillation. In 2018, another meta-analysis reviewed five articles, two of which were the Stanton and Surratt that we've discussed already, evaluating apixaban versus warfarin in patients with CKD stage four, five, or end-stage renal disease. The population included over 50,000 patients with 87% using apixaban for stroke prevention and AFib. Results indicated no difference in the rate of thromboembolic events 
but they did find a reduction in major bleeding in patients receiving apixaban with CKD. And then in the subgroup analysis with end-stage renal disease patients only, this uh, was found as well. So apixaban having lower rates of bleeding than warfarin. The authors concluded apixaban um, is associated with a lower risk of major bleeding compared to warfarin with no difference in thromboembolic event rates in patients with reduced renal clearance. So just to summarize kind of all the data I've been discussing in patients with CKD and end-stage renal disease for non-valvular AFib, to date we have PK data supporting exposure to apixaban um, is not significantly impacted by HD when compared to those with normal renal function. The 2019 AFib guidelines um, do include apixaban as a reasonable alternative to warfarin and those who meet criteria for anticoagulation. And finally, current uh, published data, while it being retrospective, does support improved safety of apixaban as evidenced by a reduction in major bleeding when compared to warfarin in patients with advanced CKD or ESRD. While most studies reviewed primarily focused on safety, all studies showed comparative efficacy of apixaban when compared to warfarin. Therefore, if we conclude apixaban may be a safer alternative to warfarin in this patient population, for me, the remaining question is really, what is the optimal dosing strategy? In 2014, based on PK and PD data provided to the FDA, the label for apixaban was updated from no data for patients with a creatinine clearance less than 15 to stating the recommended dose for end-stage renal disease patients on HD to be five milligrams twice a day. Dose reductions to two and a half milligrams BID if the patient meets the additional criteria for age or weight is still present. However, if you recall in 2017, Mavericonis and colleagues published a multi-dose PK study with their results supporting 2.5 milligrams twice a day due to those elevated AUC and trough concentrations in some patients receiving five twice daily. Just reflecting back to the studies that I've talked about, there was variability in the dosing seen in Stanton and Surratt cohorts with the majority of patients receiving a reduced dose of apixaban 2.5 twice a day. Dosing based on indication was not provided and outcomes were not assessed based on dosing in these two trials. Given the study by Reed and colleagues primarily assessed VTE, I'm not gonna discuss the results um, for dosing um, and I don't think that that really matches for AFib. And then not all studies included in the 2018 meta-analysis including dosing information, so this can't accurately be summarized. So really here, I just wanna highlight one major point about apixaban dosing at this point in time in 2018. Based on the retrospective cohorts by Surratt and Stanton, it appeared that apixaban 2.5 BID may confer less bleeding risk compared to warfarin, as this was the primary dosing strategy used in patients with ESRD receiving apixaban for non-valvular AFib at this time. Luckily, Synodis and colleagues match cohort analysis does shed some light on the optimal dosing strategy based on efficacy and safety of apixaban. As seen here, apixaban five milligrams twice daily was superior to warfarin in terms of stroke, death, and risk of major bleeding. And as seen on the right-hand side of this chart, they also confirm what was predicted by Stanton and Surratt in their small retrospective studies that apixaban 2.5 twice a day is superior to warfarin in terms of risk of major bleeding, but no difference was found in terms of stroke, systemic embolism, or death. Based on available data, it does beg to question, did Wang and colleagues determine the optimal dosing 
of apixaban to be five milligrams twice a day in their eight patient single dose pharmacokinetic study? If so, I think that's kind of impressive, um, but I do wanna highlight that this is based on limited retrospective data, um, but current literature based on what we have would support using apixaban five milligrams twice a day for non-valvular AFib in patients with ESRD not meeting further dose reduction criteria of age or weight. As I noted before, apixaban is the only DOAC with FDA-approved labeling for patients in end-stage renal disease on HD. However, in clinical practice, you may have seen other agents such as rivaroxaban or dabigatran prescribed. And this was confirmed in published data in 2015, um, where they found that over 500 patients in the Fresenius Medical Care North American database were receiving rivaroxaban or dabigatran from 2010 to 2014 for the treatment of non-valvular AFib. While this is a small overall percentage of those dialysis patients, these agents are still being prescribed. And while the study's primary goal was to describe the prevalence, the authors did note poor outcomes in patients receiving these agents off-label and without supporting data. There's currently minimal data evaluating the safety and eff efficacy of rivaroxaban in patients with advanced CKD or ESRD, but we do have this one retrospective cohort from 2019 by Coleman and colleagues that looked at commercial and Medicare insurance databases to assess the use of rivaroxaban in patients with CKD 4, 5, or ESRD on HD, with the majority of patients in this cohort um, being CKD stage 5 or on HD. I do want to highlight that over 60% of patients received rivaroxaban at 20 milligrams per day, not the 15 milligrams daily suggested by the package insert for those with the creatinine clearance of 15 to 50. And while numerically lower with rivaroxaban, the authors found no statistically significant difference in the rate of stroke or systemic embolism when comparing rivaroxaban to warfarin. As for major, major bleeding, they did find that rivaroxaban was significantly lower um, risk of bleeding compared with warfarin. This lower bleeding rate was directionally driven by reductions in both intracranial and gastrointestinal bleeding. The authors concluded rivaroxaban was associated with less major bleeding compared with warfarin in CKD stage four or five or in stage renal disease, noting that most patients did fall in that stage five or ESRD category. To date, this is the most robust data we have supporting rivaroxaban in patients with advanced CKD or ESRD for the treatment of non-valvular AFib. And finally, McCaney and colleagues published a retrospective review of outpatient clinic data for DOACs versus warfarin. Um, this did include patients with reduced renal clearance. So over 20,000 patients were included in the study and about 7% had an EGFR of less than 30 or they were on dialysis. 475 patients with reduced renal clearance were prescribed a DOAC. And really the take home point from this slide is that in patients with an EGFR less than 30 or on HD, DOACs um, showed a reduced all-cause mortality and bleeding events compared to warfarin. Although I would say it's difficult to fully assess the impact of this data as it's not specified by individual DOAC or based on EGFR range. Nonetheless, it is additional evidence that DOACs are safe in terms of bleeding and possi possibly efficacy in patients with reduced renal clearance for the prevention of stroke in non-valvular AFib. So that was an excellent review of our very small observational studies that we have, and I am not gonna be adding any new literature to our discussion. You have seen the body of evidence, and I'm going to be really focusing 
on why DOAC should not be considered a viable option in patients with end-stage renal disease. We know that these patients are at a higher risk of stroke, but their bleeding risk is increased, and unfortunately, the efficacy of oral anticoagulation therapy is reduced. Just so we're all on the same page going into this, dibigatran, rivaroxaban, apixaban, adoxaban, in their prospective randomized controlled trials excluded patients with creatinine clearances less than 30 or 25. So we have no randomized controlled trial data to help us support um, our decision making. From a bird's eye view, and you've just heard about the majority of these studies, when we look at the role of DOAC, specifically apixaban is what I'm gonna start with. We have five, as you can see there in that first column, small retrospective observational studies. I'm going to hone in on several points of each of these in the subsequent slides, but I just want to globally point out that often in these retrospective analyses, we're not looking solely at an AFib patient population, if we look at the number of patients who were prescribed DOAC therapy, we're sitting just over 3,000. So that's it, about 3,000 patients that have been studied, and of which, since this first section will focus on apixaban, 2,794 on apixaban. And then, unfortunately, we also don't have our patient population limited to the end-stage renal disease or dialysis patient population. So two of our five studies were not limited to the population we're trying to answer this question for. Starting with the McKinney study, again, it was a retrospective cohort in outpatient clinics in one health system. It was over 2,100 patients with AFib, but what I really wanna focus on is if you pull out the patients who had the criteria of EGFR of less than 30 or dialysis, you can see that was only 1,500 patients. And then breaking that data down even farther when we're looking at who was prescribed a DOAC, we only had 34 patients or 0.3% on hemodialysis. This was again a study that looked at apixaban, rivaroxaban, and dabigatran with the vast majority of patients receiving apixaban or rivaroxaban. Looking at the outcome data for all-cause mortality or in bulk stroke, you just saw this data, but again, there was a benefit of DOAC therapy for all-cause mortality, no difference in the other efficacy outcome of embolic stroke. But again, I just want to really highlight that it's difficult to make conclusions from this data to the end-stage renal patient population because those patients were not ran, um, teased out separately. And when we look at our bleeding outcomes, whether, um, so all bleeding events here did favor DOAC therapy, hemorrhagic stroke showed no difference between our two groups. So again, really where I wanna focus is we have a very small percent of patients with end-stage renal disease in this study and the data was not analyzed separately. You'll hear me harp on this throughout, but there was no controlling or discussion of time and therapeutic range for our warfarin patients. We started this talk talking about how we don't have great data for anticoagulation therapy in general in this patient population. So it would have been nice if in this observational analysis, they'd also looked at non-users. And then there was a fair amount of patients who were prescribed antiplatelet therapy, as you can see on the slide there, 13% with aspirin, 12% with dual antiplatelet therapy, which can both cause create benefit or harm in these patients, and we don't have any data analyzed with antiplatelet use. Moving to the Synodis study, it was another retrospective cohort looking at Medicare Part D prescription information. 
We had over 25,000 patients, this time all AFib, all on dialysis. 2,351 were prescribed apixaban. And then you can see that just over 7,000 patients were matched based on prognostic scores to warfarin therapy. But what I do want to point out is that censoring took place in over 60% of patients with apixaban, 70% of patients with warfarin. Censoring was defined as having either an expired prescription or a 30-day gap between prescription refills. So not the best um, data from a consistent therapy. I also wanna point out that time on therapy in this study actually, in my opinion, was quite short at just over 100 days for apixaban and 157 for warfarin when you're considering a option that should be lifelong therapy. If we look at our um, efficacy outcomes here, we have stroke and systemic embolism and death. And what you can see is there was no difference between apixaban and warfarin from an efficacy standpoint. Major bleeding did favor apixaban versus warfarin. And then when we look at GI bleeding and intracranial bleeding, there was no difference between our patient populations. And so again, I think when we consider the Synodus study, there was a very short duration. There was, in general, just a high incidence of bleeding across the board compared to um, other observational studies or our prospective randomized control trials. Again, we don't have any information on time to therapeutic range, and we don't have data for non-users. The Reed investigation is a much smaller study because it was a single center cohort in 124 patients. This study was not limited to atrial fibrillation, so patients could be on therapy for either VTE or VTE prophylaxis. You can see that 74 patients were prescribed apixaban. It's the first study that we're talking about in this section of the debate that teased out dosing. So you can see 20% of patients were on the 2.5 milligram dosing. Again, time on therapy was limited to 7.9 months for apixaban, 10.8 months for warfarin. If we look at our outcomes, starting with our baseline characteristics, you can see that only 29 patients or about 40% of the patients in apixaban were being prescribed therapy for AFib, 29 patients in the warfarin group. The primary outcomes in the read investigation were bleeding outcomes, so major bleeding and any bleeding did favor apixaban, and there was no difference in their primary outcome of recurrent BTE. In this particular study, again, I think it's a little bit difficult to extrapolate just because it wasn't limited to the AFib patient population. We also have varying dosing. We heard a great discussion about what dose we should use or not use in this patient population from Dr. Manis, and it does make it hard to extrapolate when we're looking at different dosing. And again, you've heard me say it, but time to therapeutic range is not being assessed. We don't have data for non-users. And then again, a very high percent of patients in this particular investigation were on aspirin or dual antiplatelet therapy, and we don't have any information on um, how that impacted data. The fourth observational study is Stanton et al. And you can see, again, this is a single inpatient center, so very small a number, 146 patients, not limited to end-stage renal disease. So you could also meet criteria by having a creatinine clearance of less than 25 or a serum creatinine greater than 2.5 or dialysis. Um, again, if we try to tease out what percent or how many patients were actually with end-stage renal disease or end-stage renal disease on dialysis, it was 54 patients total, 27 in each group. So again, very small numbers. And then because the study was limited to inpatient use, 
we're obviously looking at very short duration, so 4.3 days in the apixaban arm versus um, 3.8 days in the warfarin arm. If we look at the number of patients who are being prescribed therapy for AFib, you can see it was 53 patients in each group. The primary outcomes were bleeding related, so major bleeding, which was um, a modified ISTH, or composite bleeding, you can see there was no difference between groups. They attempted to look at the incidence of stroke. It was the same in both groups. Again, a hard question to answer when we're looking at an inpatient um, observational study. So that's gonna be some of my biggest critiques of this and using it to answer our question of the role of DOACs in end-stage is just not limited to AFib, a very small percent of patients with end-stage renal disease, not teasing out those patients or not analyzing their data separately. Again, we're limited to inpatient use. You've heard me harp on it, no data for non-users. And then we continue to not um, assess the presence of antiplatelet therapy, which you can see is very high percents in this particular analysis um, and how that may be impacted data. And then the last observational study, again, is another single center inpatient study at looking at 160 patients, um, 40 of which received a Pixaban. You can see here, again, they did tease out the five milligram versus 2.5 milligram dosing with the majority of patients receiving 2.5 milligrams. Average length of hospital stay was nine days in this analysis. Looking at the number of patients who were prescribed a Pixaban for AFib, it was 32 patients versus 81 in the warfarin arm major bleeding, clinically relevant, non-major bleeding or any bleeding, so there were no efficacy outcomes, just safety did not differ between our treatment arms. And so again, we have another study, not limited to AFib, limited to inpatient use, no data for non-users, no efficacy data, and we're again, um, not attempting to see the effect of concomitant antiplatelet or other anticoagulant in this case um, in our analysis. So I've been focusing on apixaban. What if we shift triroxaban into bigotran? The McInnes study that you can see there in the first one we've already talked about, it was our first retrospective analysis that I discussed that looked at apixaban, triroxaban, and bigotran. Not all patients were in-stage renal disease. Um, but so we'll focus now more on Coleman and Chan that looked at Coleman rivaroxaban versus warfarin in patients with CKD stage four or five. What you can see is that there was no difference in efficacy and potentially a favorable bleeding profile of rivaroxaban over warfarin. But our Chan colleagues looked at prevalence plots from Fresenius databases, dabigatran and rivaroxaban and warfarin, and what they found actually was excess mortality in patients who received dabigatran and rivaroxaban, probably likely due to the incidence of increased bleeding. So I think really given the very small numbers that we have for rivaroxaban and dabigatran, not favorable outcomes, I'm going to take those two options just off the table um, as far as a role for those DOACs in the treatment of end-stage renal disease patients with AFib. And then finally, we do have two meta-analyses. The Kuno meta-analysis that's listed first was published just this year. I have pulled out five subgroups from that analysis. So the first three subgroups that I wanna highlight are apixaban five milligrams, apixaban 2.5 or warfarin versus no oral anticoagulation therapy. If we look at stroke or thromboembolic events, there was no difference between any of our doses of apixaban or warfarin versus no anticoagulation. 
We did actually see a favorable mortality uh, benefit in apixaban 5 versus no anticoagulation. And then when we looked at bleeding, the bleeding outcomes showed no statistical significance. The last two subsets from the CUNO analysis looked at apixaban 5 versus warfarin or apixaban 2.5 versus warfarin. Again, no difference in the incidence of stroke or thromboembolic events. This meta-analysis did show a favorable profile of apixaban 5 over warfarin for mortality, and then apixaban did have a more favorable bleeding profile. And the final meta-analysis, um, looking at not only end-stage renal disease, but also CKD4, um, showed no benefit for stroke or thromboembolic events um, and a favorable bleeding profile for apixaban. So really, you've heard me say many of these things over and not to continue to beat a dead horse, but I think we just don't have much data. So our data in our non-end-stage renal disease patients, which were sprinkled in some of these observational studies, really can't be reliably or safely extrapolated to our end-stagers. Um, we have conflicting efficacy and safety data from these observational studies with an overall lack of efficacy for anticoagulation therapy and certainly no difference between apixaban and warfarin in the vast majority. We did see that apixaban may have a decreased incidence of bleeding over warfarin, but really what I'm here to say is we need randomized controlled trials. And I think the biggest question is whether and how to anticoagulate our patients needs to be an individualized approach. And we certainly shouldn't be just pushing to use DOACs in these patients. And that is supported by our um, consensus recommendations from numerous sources that did not take a strong stand um, on any of these agents. Thank you, Dr. Starr, for that balanced uh, con side of anticoagulation in patients with AFib. Part two of our debate will focus on anticoagulation for the treatment of acute VTE in patients with end-stage renal disease. As with atrial fibrillation, patients with re renal dysfunction are, are at an increased risk of VTE as well. Risk factors associated with VTE are often present, present in patients with chronic kidney disease as well. In addition to these risk factors that you can see on the slide, poor renal function has been shown to increase the incidence of pulmonary embolism specifically. A study in 2012 found an incidence of PE roughly eight times higher in those patients with end-stage renal disease compared with normal kidney function. Patients with VTE and end-stage renal disease often have a longer length of stay, possibly due to the use of warfarin and subsequent requirement of bridge therapy, therapy as well as in-hospital mortality compared to patients with normal renal function. Given the risk, it's un not uncommon for patients with CKD and ESRD to require therapeutic anticoagulation for both the treatment and prevention of VTE. The most recent VTE guidelines were published in 2016 by CHEST, and they do recommend vitamin K antagonists such as warfarin over DOACs in patients with a creatinine clearance less than 30 mils per minute. I'm not sure if there's even a horse to beat here, but I will tell you what we know so far about the use of DOACs in VTE. Currently, the only DOAC with data in VTE is apixaban. Um, a lot of these trials are what we've reviewed previously. So Stanton and Surratt both included patients with VTE, albeit a small number. Stanton and colleagues included 19 patients with VTE and reported no recurrent VTEs in either the warfarin or apixaban group. Surratt and colleagues included eight patients with VTE, but did not report on recurrent VTE rates. 
And the most supportive data for apixaban use and BTE treatment comes from the study by Reed and colleagues. They included 45 patients with 34 um, having an acute BTE and 11 for BTE prophylaxis. When looking a little closer at their results, it makes sense that most patients in this study were receiving five milligrams twice a day, given the indication of VTE. However, only three patients with an acute DVT received the recommended loading dose of 10 milligrams twice a day for seven days. The authors did report a numerically lower VTE recurrence rate in those taking a Pixaban compared with warfarin at 4.4% versus 28.6%. However, this was not statistically significant, likely possibly due to the small sample size. Again, not much to argue here as the data is very limited. Well, thank you for that. I'm not sure I have much to debate here. I would just like, again, to focus on our three studies, reminding you that they're all single center, all retrospective, all observational, two of which are inpatient centers. And really my main um, debate here is we only have 72 patients that have been studied with end-stage renal disease for VTE. And if we attempt to try to even look at the efficacy data, we don't really have any. It's either been not reported um, or we didn't have any incidents. Um, and then again, from a safety standpoint, I think we've talked about the, the safety between these two agents. So I'm certainly not going to treat my patients with a DOAP when their body of literature looks um, down to 72 patients only. So where does that leave us? What we hope that you can take away from our presentation today is that we really don't have um, great data to support the role of anticoagulation in general in patients with end-stage renal disease in AFib and certainly not in venous thromboembolism. Apixaban does appear to have a better bleeding profile, but I think what Dr. Manis and I both would really like you to consider is having a risk-benefit approach for every individual patient, and certainly there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all approach. And if we can give you final conclusions, again, thinking about patients with end-stage renal disease or hemodialysis, if we're looking at um, our atrial fibrillation patients, really you'll see that we have unknown benefit for warfarin and apixaban. But if you have put and committed to anticoagulating your patient on the table, so that's what we're going to do, we've made that decision, then certainly um, trying to keep your warfarin and therapeutic range at a higher percent of time would be an option, or a Pixaban could be an option, but we recommend that you use the five milligram BID dosing, and then we do not recommend our other DOAX. And then as far as venous thromboembolism goes, we are not recommending DOAX in VTE right now. Um, again, utilizing warfarin within our target INR. Thanks so much for listening into today's episode from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. It's features and content like this that make the ASHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting the place to learn and to take your practice to the next level. Be sure to join us in December for more great clinical content.